Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. I want to start off by acknowledging that, as as always, we are um, airing out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and so Indigenuity would like to acknowledge their continued connection to these beautiful skies, lands and waterways, um, and to pay our respects to their elders past and present, and also to extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be tuning in this weekend on a rather beautiful sort of feeling Sunday. You know, things are getting cold, but the sun's out. The ground's sort of wet, but the sun's out, so <laughs> hopefully you can make the most of today. Today we're going to be speaking with Yasmin Smith. Yasmin Smith is an editor, writer, and poet of South Sea Islander, Northern Cheyenne, Gubby Gubby, and English Heritage. Yasmin is the curator and series editor of the First Nations Classic series, which is being released through University of Queensland Press. Yasmin, welcome to Indigenuity. Hi, Crystal. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what this First Nations Classic series is. Yeah, so I guess the First Nations Classics um, were really kind of launched out of this idea of um, reviving and honouring some of UQP's incredible backlist of, of First Nations writing. Um, UQP has this long-standing tradition of publishing and kind of championing First Nations authors. And so we have many um, incredible backlists of, of iconic books, I guess, timeless books that are of clear cultural importance and really deserve a contemporary readership. So I guess the First Nations classics were designed to celebrate that great, rich legacy of groundbreaking First Nations writing. And we really wanted a series that, you know, was across a range of genres and authors and generations and um, to really bring attention back to these books individually, but then also as like a collectible series as well. So this is a series of books where they've previously been published by UQP. Uh, in the past, they have a lot of uh, cultural significance. And so I guess they're being sort of like um, republished with also some sort of nice new additions to them. I was wondering if you tell us a bit about what are some of the works that are coming, that are being published in this First Nations classic series? Yeah, so I guess we really kind of dipped back into UQP's like rich archive Um and we wanted to choose like a collection of books that ranged across, you know, genres, styles um, from different authors that represented different mob and language groups across the continent and were really published from, you know, different decades. So I guess to speak a little bit individually about, you know, what's included in the series, um, we chose, you know, some really iconic works of fiction like Tony Birch's um, novel Blood. We also picked, you know, books like Ellen Vanier Van Heaton's Light, Heaton Light and um, Janine Lane's Purple Threads, um, which are, you know, David Unipon winners are all significant award-winning books. Um, but, yeah, we also wanted to kind of spotlight books that, you know, weren't maybe as well-known as some of the other titles that we have, um, you know, books like Herb Wharton's, you know, Outback novel Unbranded and Archie Weller's incredible, you know, 
short story collection, The Window Seat, um, which, you know, books that may have been published in generations or in decades that they weren't as widely read when they were first published or didn't really receive the attention that they deserved back then. Well, it's wonderful that you're, I guess, then giving them this sort of second second chance in the spotlight to be able to reach this wider audience. Yeah. And I mean, we also kind of wanted to include like really inspirational and co- iconic books as well that are, are be- better known. You know, we have biographies in there by two First Nations legacy writers, like Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence by um, Doris Nagigaramara Pilkington and Don't Take Your Love to Town by Ruby Langford Guinnaby, um, you know, both of which are really um, standout, extraordinary works of nonfiction. And then, you know, kind of to wrap the series up, we we also wanted to include and honour um, our long-standing list of First Nations poets. So, yeah, we unearthed, you know, an out-of-print out of poetry collection called Holocaust Island, which was written by, you know, Nunga poet Graham Dixon, um, who, you know, he penned this incredible collection from Fremantle Prison when he was incarcerated and, and Holocaust Island was actually the inaugural winner of, you know, the David Unipon Award back in 1989. So, you know, we kind of really hoped that the First Nations classics would be this honorary celebration of, of black writing and that it would be accessible for readers now and also for future generations as well. That's incredible. So you've got like a range of different genres with having um, sort of like biographical fiction, nonfiction, um, as well as coming from, you know, different readership levels and also different, uh, I guess, like specifically different times as well. So that's a, a quite a diverse range of books to have included. What do you feel like probably some of the challenges were in trying to curate a list when I guess there's so many to choose from um, and sort of ending up with the ones that you have now? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We have such, you know, a rich backlist um, at UQP and, of, of course, you know, across across Indigenous publishing in general. Um, so I guess we really wanted to just give readers a bit of a taste of, of what we have and we're hoping to, you know, continue the series. Um, I guess we also wanted to really honour the classics in a, in, in a way for the work that they've done. So we, we relaunched them as new editions and, you um, you know, each of the classics have kind of been introduced by, you know, leading contemporary Indigenous voices as well. So we've, you know, we've got these new introductions that, you know, give, I guess, a fresh breath um, and also kind of reflect on the weight that these books have carried since they were first published. Mm. Yeah. And and these introductions, because you have, uh, we're looking at, um, you know, these these texts from the past, not that distant past, you know, um, but you've, you've matched them up with a whole range of contemporary authors to give provide these um, introductions. Can you explain to us a bit about what that process was for being able to, I guess, curate this list of authors to come on board to provide these introductions and also how you paired them to each book? Yeah, so again, um, we really wanted this kind of cross-hatching between genres and genders and um and generations so you know we obviously you know with a lot of consultation and collaboration with the authors themselves we um you know we we tried to you know carefully kind of curate an author and an an introducer and match their work um based on you know maybe a pairing between two that 
whose lives or their their work or their art in themselves it might have been influenced or intertwined by the book. So some of you know the people that we've included would were poets like Evelyn Araluen and you know Ellie Kobe Ekerman and we have um, you know Nadi Simpson and. Uh, Larissa Barrent and you know we kind of wanted a range of forms as well so we've got you know iconic singer-songwriter Kev Carmody and um, you know actor Ernie Dingo so yeah there's like a a range of voices that speak um, across you know the work itself and and people that you know were really kind of icons in within First Nations um, I guess within First Nations history I guess. Yeah, wow. So a diverse range of new voices as well. Um, it sound, honestly, it sounds amazing. <laughs> um, so I guess you've sort of explained to us quite a bit about what the aims are with this series and what um, why it's sort of come about. I'm wondering, this is probably a personal question for yourself, but has it inspired any sort of potential like future projects or any other type of inspiration that you are feeling and intending to sort of move forward with? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, with UQP, um, we obviously, are, you know, a publishing house that really values First Nations writing and authors. And so working as a series editor there has been in itself a really great learning ground for me to be able to, you know, not, I mean, with this series in particular, I was able to kind of dig back into the backlist and, um, and kind of rediscover stories um, by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And so um, I guess, you know, being able to work on, uh, I guess, the series in a, in a long-term, um, in a long-term way would be, you know, I guess one of my, uh, something that I'm, I'm really in- encouraged by and looking forward to. Wonderful. Well, then, um, I mean, it sounds like an amazing series. Uh, I look forward to seeing everything come to fruition and checking out these First Nations classics, as well as these, you know, this breath of fresh air, as you described it, new introductions, which are helping to, I guess, like recontextualize and introduce us to these works. Um, So I, I wish you all the best and thank you so much for your time on Indigenuity. Thank you for having me. We are now hopping into our second chat for today. Um, We're going to be speaking with Harry Murphy, who is a Pathways Program Lead at the National Aboriginal Sporting Chance Academy, otherwise known as NASCAR. NASCAR is a 100% Indigenous-led organisation which is working to improve the educational and employment outcomes of Indigenous students in New South Wales. And in 2022, they had a 100% graduation rate, which was double that of the New South Wales average. So the work they're doing is clearly very effective. Harry, welcome to Indigenuity. Hi, Crystal. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what is the National Aboriginal Sporting Chance Academy? What's the work that you aim to do? Yeah, so um, we've been around since 1995. Uh, we're a 100% Indigenous-led organisation, an Indigenous-governed organisation. And what we're trying to do is help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people um, attend and complete school and then gain employment and further education opportunities. As we know, you know, there's a lot of um, barriers that that our young people face, including discrimination, exclusion, intergenerational trauma, and the list goes on. So, you know, these have a huge effect on our kids' ability to complete their their education and go on to find employment. So, you know, we exist to help break down those barriers. Um, You know, we encourage students 
to come to school, stay in school, um, and finish school. I've got, you know, one-to-one mentoring, academic and assessment support, and also, um, you know, helping kids connect with their culture because, you know, as we know, um, culture is the most important thing for our young, young people. When our young people are connected to their culture, all of their outcomes improve. Absolutely. And I, um, I, I mean, I'm very impressed by the outcomes that you've achieved through NASCAR as well. Uh, I used to focus a bit on student engagement and I know it can be difficult um, trying to retain us in a system that is not always super welcoming and, you know, um, accommodating to our needs. And so it's incredible to hear about the work that you're doing and the success that you have while doing it. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about some of the programs that you run through NASCAR. Yeah, um, and thank you for mentioning that as well. And uh, we're incredibly proud of the work that we do and um, we're incredibly good at it. Um, We have, you know, what I think is a testament um, to the kind of organisation that NASCAR is is that we have multiple um, former students from the program who work for us, myself included. Um, So I was in the program when I was at high school and I, I tell this story to the kids all the time is that, you know, had it not been for, for the support that I had gotten from NASCAR, there's no no way I would have finished high school. So, you know, in terms of the programs that we that we do, so, you know, like I said, um, we work within the school, um, helping our kids with whatever it is that they need to help them get through the school day, whether that be, you know, picking them up in the morning in the NASCAR bus, helping them with homework, helping with an assignment. Um, you know, if kids haven't had breakfast yet, giving them a feed, um, whatever it is that, that they need to help um, get them through the school day. Um, and we're incredibly good at that. As, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, we had 100% of our um, Year 12 students enrolled in our program um, going to finish last year, which is, yeah, more than double the, the state average incredible. of 43%. Yeah, in New South Wales. And so we're incredibly good at that. And um, the Pathways Program, which uh, which I am part of, um, is a fairly new um, part of NASCAR's program. Um, I've worked at NASCAR for for four years, and uh, before before starting Pathways, I was I was in a um, different role within the school. And, and what we're aiming to do with the Pathways Program is sort of extend that holistic support that that we provide. So we're very good at getting kids through school and finishing school, but then what happens next? And and as we know, you know, when kids go out into the world, um, it can be extremely challenging. So, so what we're trying to do with the Pathways program is open the kids' eyes up to the many opportunities um, that are out there that are available to them, um, most of which the kids have no idea about. Um, and, you know, just hopefully inspiring them to, to have a bit more of a think about what it is they might want to do when they do leave school. And, you know, our job isn't to, to tell them that we think that they should go down a particular career pathway. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's all about the idea of self-determination. So I see my job as, you know, finding out from, you know, whichever student it is, what is it that you want to do? And I'm going to do everything that I can to, to help you achieve that. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's great to hear uh, that you've been through the program yourself and you found success within it and have stayed on or joined as someone to uh, to keep the program moving forward. Could you tell us a bit about, um, from your personal experience, why you felt the program was effective for you? Yeah, I think when I, you know, reflect and look back on it, I think it was really around the mentorship. I mean, you know, we got to do really cool things like go on camps, you know, connect with 
other Aboriginal kids from, you know, across New South Wales. So we got to do all of that cool stuff. But I think for me it was um, the mentorship that uh, really pushed me to want to do better and want to continue on with my schooling. And, you know, I looked at at the mentors, um, you know, who were supporting me and, and thought to myself, actually, that's something I think I might like to do one day because, you know, it's having such a, a deep impact on me. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably what it comes down to. Oh, that is beautiful. Makes sense. <laughs> you seem like the perfect person okay. to step into this mentor role. Um, and also just this number is staggering to me of retention rates of having a graduation rate of 100% in 2022 compared to the state average only being 43%. Uh, do you think that there are th- what do you I guess um, are there things that you feel you would hope that the general education system would do better or perhaps learn from NASCAR's strategies to enable all Indigenous students to be able to graduate as they should be able to? Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's an interesting question, and I think um, you know I, I can only speak to to our our program and and you know the approach that we take and you know being. Being 100%, um, you know, Aboriginal-governed, Aboriginal-led organisation, we, we take that, um, you know, into the work that we do. So, you know, when designing a program, culture is at the centre of everything that we do. Culture is the foundation and that, that's where we're starting from. And, you know, over, over 95% of our, our staff who are, who are on the ground delivering um, our programs are First Nations people themselves and, and overwhelmingly um, they're First Nations people who are from the communities that, that we're working in. So whether that be, you know, the inner city of Sydney, western Sydney, the north coast of New South Wales or, you know, western New South Wales, far west of New South Wales, the vast majority of our staff are Aboriginal people from these communities working in their communities. So I think, you know, that doesn't... Uh, explain everything, but it doesn't explain nothing. I think mm. that having that culture-centred approach um, to the work that we're doing creates, um, yeah, creates really good outcomes. Yeah, makes sense. And you recently had a um, a pretty a pretty large program, a week long program called the Career Fit Program. Um, go down. Sorry, that's a weird way of phrasing it. Go down. Apologies. Um, but uh, you recently had this event run, and you had seventy students attending. Can you explain to us a bit about what that program was and what the aims were and um, what your aims were to achieve? Yeah. So Career Fit. Um, this is the second year that we've been running it. Last year um, was our pilot. We had fifty uh, students of ours from across New South Wales come to Sydney. Um, and that was a really, it was really successful. So this year we were able to get some more funding for it. So, you know, we were able to bring 70 NASCA students from across New South Wales um, between years 10 and 12. And it was a week, a week-long camp um, in Sydney. And, you know, when people hear the term career fit, you know, what, what comes to mind is one of those sort of career expo days where you've got you know, all your different sort of exhibitors in a room. Um, you know, we try to we try to expand on that. So, you know, we have a we have a network of, of partners from across different industries who we engage to provide workshops that are, you know, fun, engaging. Um, so we, that's one of the ways we kind of expand on it. But one of the other ways that we expand on it is we reach out to to First Nations mentors who. Um, are working in these industries, so whether that be STEM or 
finance or, or whatever it is, um, and we engage them and, and get them to come and, you know, just have a yarn to the kids and tell them about their, you know, experiences and, and how they got to where they are. And, you know, we're talking about industries that, you know, a lot of our kids will never have even thought of. I mean, to use one, one example um, of one of the mentors we had, is a woman named uh, Celeste, it's from a company called Indigi- Indigitech. Oh, I love this. I love um, Celeste. Wonderful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's deadly. Um, and, yeah, she just, you know, STEM, this whole thing and, you know, black women working in STEM, it's just, it's it's so cool and it's so cool for our kids to to see that. And, the you know, the theme that we kind of had, um, you know, running in the back of our heads throughout this whole thing was you can't be what you can't see. Mm. So we're just trying to, you know, open the kids' eyes to to all of these, you know, possibilities that are out there and just get them thinking about it. And and if they walk away inspired, then, then we've done a good job. Wonderful. And so if there were students in New South Wales who were wanting to get involved with NASCAR, uh, how would they be able to do so? And are there any requirements for them to be able to engage with your programs? Yeah, so um, the way our program works is we work in... Uh, within schools. So we have 19 schools um, across Sydney and, uh, you know, regional New South Wales. Um, unfortunately, the way that it works is um, you have to be going to one of those schools. So so we're funded to work um, within these schools and, you know, there's no real requirement for a, for a student to join up. You know, they just have to be attending the school that, that we're at and, you know, identify as Aboriginal and then we'll do whatever we can to help them. Oh, excellent. Well, it sounds like you're doing really marvellous work. Congratulations on such exciting outcomes, especially with 100% graduation rate. That is phenomenal. Um, And as as I said, as someone who uh, used to be very focused on student retention and student engagement, um, to see numbers like that really blows my mind. And so, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for your time and to keep up the deadly work. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.